coming up on episode six of the ELB podcast. Can the Supreme Court handle social science evidence in election law cases? Will the lack of good data determine the outcome of the Supreme Court's upcoming one-person-one-vote decision in Evanwell versus Abbott? What role will and should evidence play in assessing questions such as the constitutionality of McCain-Feingold's soft money ban or Texas's strict voter identification law? On episode six of the ELB podcast, we will talk to law professor and political scientist Nate Persley of Stanford Law School, one of the country's leading redistricting and election law experts. Stay tuned. Welcome to the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan of the UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law blog. Joining me today is Professor Nate Persley, the James B. McClatchy Professor of Law at Stanford Law School and widely considered one of the country's very top experts in the area of voting rights, political parties, campaign finance, and redistricting. Uh, in addition to uh, serving as a law professor and writing articles in law and political science, uh, Nate has also served as a special master for drawing uh, various redistricting plans. And most recently, he was the senior research director for the Presidential Commission on Election Administration, a bipartisan commission created by President Obama to deal with the long lines at the polling places and other administrative problems witnessed in the 2012 election. Uh, and Nate has agreed to join me today to talk about the role of social science at the Supreme Court and in other courts thinking about election law issues. Nate, thanks so much for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I wanted to talk today about the role of social science in election law cases, especially at the Supreme Court. We see social science claims made all the time by litigants at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court justices themselves often make empirical statements. Political scientists have long submitted briefs to the court with social science research uh, in them. And of course, many uh, political scientists have served as experts at various voting rights trials and other election law cases. So I want to explore a little bit the role that social science has and can play at the court. And I thought we could start with a current case, the Evanwell case, which the Supreme Court is considering this term. Could you please tell us what the case is about? What is the point of your amicus brief and whether uh, the data that you bring to bear in that amicus brief should be dispositive of the case. So the Evanwell case was brought by uh, some plaintiffs in Texas who alleged that the uh, Texas state legislative districts are uh, malapportioned, that they violate one person, one vote. Um, it's not that they have different numbers of people. It's that uh, because the Texas legislature didn't equalize the number of voters or eligible voters per district, they say that violates the spirit of one person, one vote, uh, despite the fact that uh, we have been drawing districts with equal numbers of people in them, at least since the one person, one vote rule was invented, if not before. And so um, the, there's a deep philosophical question here as to whether the one person, one vote rule uh, is protective of equal numbers of voters or equal numbers of people, or if it leaves it up to the states to decide. Now, the empirical question, or maybe the social science question, as you posed it, or as I do in the amicus brief, is, well, we do we even know who an eligible voter is? And uh, this is not so much a statistical argument as it is just a familiar survey data kind of argument, which is, um, people tend to think that there's a, a national list of citizens out there somewhere or a national or that each state keeps a tally 
of the eligible voters. And my brief makes the point that there no such tally exists. So to even draw districts on equal numbers of, of eligible voters is impossible. That has to be conceded. There's no question that we don't know uh, uh, with specificity the number of equal numbers of uh, eligible voters per district. Uh, but there are substitutes that the plaintiffs bring up in this case, and known as the um, citizen voting age population data from the American Community Survey. And that survey is done uh, every year of 2.5% of American households. And then they, the census publishes estimates uh, averaged over five years. And my brief makes the argument that these estimates are not the type of thing that we should be using for redistricting, um, and that at a minimum, states should be permitted to do what they've always done, which is to use the census enumeration as uh, the permissible grounds uh, and data for redistricting. And so uh, if the court accepted the plaintiff's argument, uh, would you expect that this would have to lead to the government collecting new data? Or could the court actually order that to happen? Well, that, that would truly be unprecedented. I mean, it's, it's unclear what relief the plaintiffs are actually seeking here. The way they put it is they say, look, this is a modest argument where we're just saying that you shouldn't have these wild disparities based on the available uh, data that we have from the citizen, you know, regarding citizen voting age population. And so they're, in their reply brief, what they say is that the court should at least just declare that, you know, this factor needs to be taken into account. We'll let the district court worry about the details. And, you know, that is the script from Baker versus Carr, the original one person, one vote case, which just said that there's an equal protection violation here. And then later cases like Reynolds versus Sims said uh, what one person, one vote would mean. Now, I, again, I have no idea what someone does the day after they get a Supreme Court judgment that says you have to equalize the numbers of, of eligible voters in districts. Um, one possibility is that they say, all right, the state of Texas, and for that matter, every state now needs to collect data on that, or they say that the, you just use the available survey data that you have, which is good enough for government work, which would maybe be the census survey, assuming that it, it the census ACS survey, assuming that it keeps, you know, it has it, it continued to be funded and continues. Um, or they just say that there, there's a violation here and we're going to leave it up to the district court to figure it out. But that, that's why I, I mean, I think this argument was not one that people expected to occupy as much space and time in the debate uh, because they're such deep philosophical arguments. But this is a way I think the court can avoid some of these foundational questions about representation versus voting power and just say, look, that there's we don't have any information about who the eligible voters are in the U.S. Now, I haven't delved into the most recent set of briefs, but I recall in the earlier briefing uh, by the plaintiffs in this case, they suggested it would be possible to draw districts that equalize both the number of people and the number of voters. Uh, what well, do you make of that argument? Well, th that right, so the, what, what's remarkable about that argument, and uh, there, there's some behind-the-scenes stuff that I'm aware of here, um, they, they say it's possible. They have never shown that map publicly to anyone. And it's no surprise that they haven't shown that map publicly to anyone, and that because the districts would be so contorted and so um, dilutive of the Lat Latino vote in Texas that to even put it out there would be uh, would cause such a backlash. Now, in theory, you could equalize voters and people uh, in any given plan if you're not worried about any other constraint, like communities of interest or political subdivisions or anything dealing with politics. 
um, because then all you're doing is looking at the uh, the numbers on the screen and trying to just hit some uh, magic sweet spot there. But but in, especially in a place like Texas, where the levels of citizenship are so uh, geographical, it's different based on geography, you're going to end up with gigantic districts in South Texas uh, or, or very long stringy ones that go up to try to join equal numbers of non-citizens on the border with citizens in the interior. And so uh, they'd be incredibly disfigured. Um, but it is theoretically possible. I think it would probably violate the Voting Rights Act almost certainly on a map like that. All right, I want to turn from uh, the Evanwell case to some broader questions. And I, I was thinking about your research uh, in election law and how some of the research you've done has cast out on key assumptions of the Supreme Court in three different areas. So in the campaign finance arena, the court has long recognized the appearance of corruption as an interest that could justify campaign contribution limits. And yet your work with Kelly Lammy persuasively shows that the public's trust or confidence in government doesn't seem to be well tied to the presence or absence of campaign finance limits. In the voter ID area, the court has again said that strict voter ID laws can promote public confidence in the election process, maybe stimulating voter turnout. Yet your work with Steve and Salabert in the Harvard Law Review seems to call this conclusion in doubt, finding no correlation between voter ID laws, presence or absence in confidence. And finally, in the racial gerrymandering area, beginning with Shaw versus Reno, the court has said that dividing voters into districts on the basis of race perhaps out of a need to comply with the Voting Rights Act, can create an expressive harm, sending a message to voters that the government is separating them on the basis of race. And you have a new piece with Stephen Salabert coming out in the NYU Law Review, casting doubt on this assumption, too. And so what does this tell you about how the Supreme Court makes its empirical judgments? And is there any hope for social scientists to educate the court on the actual empirical world as opposed to the world that they seem to create? in their opinions. So the areas of law that you just discussed really focus on the question of appearances. And one of the, the if there's a uh, holistic argument that I've been making in, in those in areas and others is that um, the Supreme Court should not base its constitutional decisions on public perceptions because they are uh, not only manipulable, uh, but they are usually unconnected to the constitutional phenomenon that the court is analyzing. So in the context of um, campaign finance, the you know specific test is, uh, you know, as you said, or had been at least prior to Citizens United and McCutcheon, that you could regulate certain campaign finance activity consistent to prevent corruption or the appearance of corruption. And we had in the McConnell case, which preceded uh, Citizens United, the remarkable uh, occurrence of the Department of Justice commissioning a public opinion survey asking people a question like the following. Do you think that people who make $250,000 contributions to political parties have too much influence, just the right amount of influence, or not enough influence, right? And a question like that cannot possibly be the linchpin of a constitutional argument, right? And, and so my piece with Kelly Lammy in the Penn Law Review way back when was to basically saying, look, everyone believes that that um, almost all campaign finance activity is corrupt. Whenever you put money and politics in the same sentence, people are, are distrusting. Uh, but there's no reason to think that um, that will change when when you have campaign finance reform. 
uh, and that's basically been the trend since then. Um, that's not to say that people don't perceive corruption uh, in, and think the campaign finance system is, is both terrible and broken, and they do, um, but that really shouldn't be the crux of the argument. Now, just because public opinion data should not be considered by the court doesn't mean that the appearance of corruption argument or the appearance of uh, other kinds of impropriety shouldn't. We have a long uh, line of cases, not just in election law, but elsewhere, dealing with conflicts of interest. And when you talk about conflicts of interest, there is a kind of appearance flavor to it, but it doesn't involve looking at uh, sort of public opinion data in order to figure it out. I just, you know, I get really concerned when um, the court starts, if it, it were to base its decisions on uh, sort of widespread public perceptions uh, of problems in the democracy, because that, that does seem to me a slippery slope toward uh, certain other kinds of uh, disastrous judicial intervention. I mean, you think about just in the campaign finance area, certainly, we, which is a First Amendment rich area, you would never have a you know poll submitted into evidence saying, well, do you think communists pose you know a, a terrible danger to the republic, a moderate danger, or no danger at all, and then have that be dispositive in the case dealing with incitement or something like that. And so uh, it's fine to use other kinds of empirical evidence, just not the public opinion polls. Uh, and that brings me to the crux of your question, which is, well, so when, you know, is the court uh, playing with fire whenever it considers social science evidence? And the answer there is certainly no. Uh, it has to deal with social science evidence. Um, the voting rights context is rich with it. So the whole jingles framework dealing with uh, vote the, under the Voting Rights Act uh, assumes that social scientists are going to be battling over questions such as uh, whether there's racially polarized voting, how 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 polarized is the electorate, how how much support do minority preferred candidates need in order to get elected and the like. So they can't get out of it. Um, but it, but it's certainly the case that some uh, some you know justices are more distrusting of it than others. I want to come back to something you said a few minutes ago about the in the campaign finance area, and specifically in the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission case, which struck down limits on corporate spending in candidate elections. Justice Kennedy made a couple of statements. Uh, he said that independent spending cannot corrupt and cannot cause the public to lose confidence in the fairness of the election process. How do you read those? Do you take Justice Kennedy as making an empirical judgment about the effect of money on politics? Or was he doing something else? And if he's making an empirical judgment, how do we know if he's right or not? Well, to some so that's an interesting question because is he making an argument about is this about a legal fiction or a legal fact uh, or an empirical fact? Right. So there is, um, you know, as you know, the one of the uh, touchstones of uh, or linchpins of campaign finance law is this notion that uh, ex independent expenditures cannot, by definition, corrupt. Okay. And so, uh, and and in that sense, corrupt meaning, say, influence an office holder's judgment, because the idea is that uh, the the money is being spent independently without coordination with the candidate, and so therefore there's no prearrangement that would lead to um, some kind of quasi bribery. So I read most of that argument not being about empirics, but but a sort of definitions that they that he has made the decision that uh, outside money simply cannot corrupt um, in, uh, according to his definition of corruption. Now, uh, according to, say, your definition of corruption, Larry Lessig's definition of corruption, or even mine, uh, I don't know whether I'd call it corruption or just influence or something, um, no doubt there are independent expenditures that 
uh, gain people access to politicians and uh, they will have their views taken into consideration more than if they didn't make those kind of independent expenditures. I don't think there's a question about that. Um, and so that is, I mean, I, I believe we've should have shown, we, the political science community has shown that there's greater access. Um, you know, how big a deal this is, is, is open to dispute. And there's a lot of debate over um, the basic questions in campaign finance as to how much money really makes a difference, both on electoral outcomes and then on um, uh, officeholder behavior. Uh, but I sort of don't think he was making a, an empirical argument. He was making almost a kind of categorical legal argument. I want to I want to turn for a minute to uh, partisan gerrymandering, uh, especially given your experience with uh, serving as a redistricting master. And what I've noticed is that despite cases like the Veith case, litigants continue to look for tests for partisan gerrymandering that could satisfy Justice Kennedy, who is the swing vote in these cases. There's been recent work by Nick Stephanopoulos, which is being relied on in a new Wisconsin case. Princeton's uh, Sam Wang has just filed a brief in which he offers what he claims is a simple but powerful test to determine partisan gerrymandering. Do you expect these efforts are going to bear fruit? Do you think that social science is going to offer something that the Supreme Court's going to be willing to buy? I think that it's going to take one more judicial appointment for there to be a change in partisan gerrymandering. I, I think that if Justice Kennedy was unwilling to find partisan gerrymandering in the Veith case, and he was in the Pennsylvania gerrymandering case, and he was unwilling to find partisan gerrymandering in the Texas case, the LULAC case that followed it. I don't see how he's going to find it in any uh, other case. Now, um, we have in actually in the Harris, uh, I believe it's the Harris case, the, this one that is coming um, to the Supreme Court, this argued the same day as Evanwell, this one coming out of Arizona. Uh, Sam Wang from Princeton actually has written an amicus brief that tries to give a administrable partisan gerrymandering standard. But but anyone who heard the oral argument in Veith realizes that there is deep skepticism among um, the more conservative justices on the court for uh, the use of, of any fancy statistical um, test in order to determine partisan gerrymandering. And it's not a fancy I put in air quotes because it's not as if um, the tests are that difficult for a social scientist to administer. But I often say to my political science friends that if they're proposing some use of social science to the court, um, anytime you get away from a simple bivariate regression, the simple sort of relationship between two variables, um, you have exhausted the, the talents of most judges. And so um, there are some brilliant judges who can deal with complicated statistical matters across many areas of law, but as a constitutional test, I think it's extremely difficult to uh, design an administrable partisan uh, gerrymandering standard that relies on on those kind of statistical relationships. If there's one based on motive, if there's one based on, um, you know, sort of uh, defects in the process, that's one thing. But uh, you could see it in the oral argument in Veith where, where Justice Scalia sort of dressed down the uh, appellants in that case, and it was it was not a pretty sight. But, you know, there, there's still the possibility that with a different judicial appointment that it could uh, make a difference. Right, the last area I want to turn to is the Voting Rights Act. And I, I have uh, two questions for you. First, I want to look at the uh, question of Section 2 claims and redistricting. Uh, there seems to have been a 
a pretty marked decline in the number of Section 2 cases being brought and being successful in redistricting. Do you attribute this to declines in racially polarized voting? Do you think that uh, all the uh, the low-hanging fruit has been taken, or is there some other explanation for why Section 2 claims in the redistricting area seem to have been uh, declining over the last, say, decade or so? Well, I do think it's, it's about the low-hanging fruit. I mean, to some extent, um, and this this builds on your work. The uh, you know you, you the the world is different now, and the incentives of the different parties have changed since the early days of the Voting Rights Act. And so, if you look in the and I mean the early days of the amended Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. So in the 1980s and 90s, uh, you had the NAACP Legal Defense Fund easily going you know from one local jurisdiction to the other using the tests from Thornburg versus Jingles and saying sort of formulaically that they had to break up their at-large systems and uh, create some majority minority districts. Uh, and then that transferred into the state level in, in um, later years. And so most of those districts have are now preserved and most of the areas of concern, at least in the South, are now under Republican control and, and they have in general kept uh, most majority minority districts. They won't increase the number if they can avoid it. And that's in some ways what the Texas cases are often about. Um, but but they often find, you know, incentives to keep those, or they have the incentive to keep those districts. That's what the Alabama case from last term at the Supreme Court was was sort of about. Uh, so I think that, that what's happened is the uh, jurisdictions have learned to live with these uh, districts. And so there are fewer that are... Um, being litigated. And I also think it's just extremely expensive. And so I think the civil rights organizations that are the often the progenitors of these kinds of cases are picking their fights wisely. And what's happened is that Section 2 has moved from the redistricting realm into the voter ID realm and other restrictions on uh, the franchise. And so that there's a real question as to whether something like voter ID can now be struck down under Section 2 and what would be the test. And so the court at some point in the next few years is going to have to visit that question. That was exactly my second question, which was looking at these new vote denial cases. Do you see uh, courts being able to make meaningful distinctions about what violates the Voting Rights Act? We're talking about voter ID or cutbacks in early voting. Given the difficulty of teasing out turnout effects, given the question about importing kind of a non-retrogression standard from Section 5, as well as the difficult questions which you alluded to about the tangled relationship between race and party, especially in the South. So where do you see these cases going? I, I think these are extremely challenging cases. And to some extent, the thing that makes them challenging is that you have to develop a test for Section 2, which is not identical to the constitutional standard for discrimination, which would deal with discriminatory purpose and effect, but at the same time does not end up knocking down all kinds of other restrictions or, or other aspects of the electoral system that have disparate racial impacts. So to, to put it bluntly, um, how do you develop a test that would strike down voter ID that has a racially discriminatory impact? but not at the same time develop a test that strikes down both vo the existence of voter registration and felon disfranchisement, and not just felon disfranchisement, but prisoner disfranchisement. Uh, and so uh, this, this, these are thorny questions. And you know, if you have some efforts that are made in these cases, to some extent, 
um, they try to build on what seems to be Justice Kennedy's concern in the earlier LULAC uh, redistricting case out of Texas, which sort of points in the direction that at some point the impact of a, a decision looks like it might have a discriminatory purpose, maybe not one that would uh, be of constitutional significance, but it uh, something smells wrong here. Um, and so you, you sort of get that feel out of these cases that because of when they were passed and, and the knowledge as to who, was, who didn't have a voter ID and the likely impact that there was something that looked like discriminatory purpose, certainly uh, you get that out of the Texas voter ID case. The, and then in uh, North Carolina, uh, they're making that argument. In Wisconsin, I mean, Judge Posner is really trying to, uh, tried to uh, who originally had sanctified voter ID with the earlier decision in the Crawford case, he in the, in the newest cases um, is saying that voter ID, uh, you know, even leaving aside the racial implications, is a measure that attempts to disenfranchise Democrats, uh, some, uh, an argument he sort of discarded earlier on. But now he has made a very sort of partisan argument in his uh, opinion, and that's one that, that really uh, could, could jar the court. Um, I, I'm not sure where these cases are going to go. I think that, there, that it, you do not have something as readily available as the test from Thornburg versus Jingles that can be applied in the vote denial. Uh, context, but it whatever it's going to look like some kind of big totality of the circumstances test, which sort of pushes on purpose as being um, uh, sort of indicated by certain set of facts and procedures that led to the passage of voter ID. So as we're looking down, say, to the next 10 years at the Supreme Court uh, in terms of election cases, you've already mentioned these vote denial cases see, seem like they're on a course to the Supreme Court. What else are you expecting, and, uh, and 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 do you expect social science to play a role in resolving those cases? Well, so I think again, the partisan gerrymandering area. If there is going to be a test, uh, I suspect that the the this is where the political scientists will somehow win over a fifth vote on, on the court and uh, convince them to adopt the test. Um, it'll it'll be interesting to see. I mean, because this is where you you look at cases like in Florida and in the, in the state court proceedings where political scientists really played an important role, uh, at least in the expert witness testimony. Uh, so that's where you might see it. Um, uh, as you said, in the vote denial context, you're going to see it with uh, evidence about the impact of voter ID. Um, you see that in Texas. You mentioned my uh, co-author, Stephen Salabahar, who was involved in this. But you also look at, for instance, Nolan McCarty, who was involved in the um, for the state in the Texas redistricting, or in the Florida redistricting fight, as were political scientists Jonathan Rodden at Stanford and Joey Chen at Michigan. So they they were actively involved. Charles Stewart, um, known to many of us, uh, was actively involved in the North Carolina case, I believe, and maybe uh, Virginia. Um, I'm not sure about Virginia, uh, but he. But so the, so they've been involved in the redistricting fights and the vote denial fights. Uh, on the constitutional side, I, I really I, in campaign finance, I don't see there being a whole lot of sort of statistical evidence that's going to sway the court, assuming it continues in the more libertarian direction that that it has been going in. Um, um, but the, you know, the next shoe to drop in the campaign finance room would be have to do with something dealing with political parties. And whether the other part of McCain-Feingold or uh, the BCRA, or uh, which was upheld by McConnell, the ban on soft money, you know, large contributions to political parties from corporations, unions, and rich individuals, whether that is also unconstitutional. 
And if I had to sort of point, you know, th this is an area where there's been a lot of work done by political scientists like Ray LaRaja and others, which have tried to make the case that uh, there are good arguments for trying to rectify the imbalance in the campaign finance system so that political parties become stronger institutions as compared to um, uh, the other kinds of outside interest groups that have a polarizing effect on the political system. So I think that maybe that's one area where you could see some action uh, dealing with parties and campaign finance. I don't see it in some of the other uh, party cases uh, that could put, put potentially come to, before the court dealing with, say, primary elections and the like. But that is another area where we've seen some action by uh, political scientists. Well, as always, Nate, I've learned so much from you, and I appreciate you taking the time to uh, sit down with me and talk and, and not answer your call that was coming in at the in your last uh, in your last answer. Uh, I, I, I appreciate it and I look forward to uh, your thoughts as the Evermill case gets uh, argued next month before the court. All right, thank you. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassen. Goodbye. <laughs>